0: Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 28 of Inside Quizzing.
1: A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible.
0: Now, it has been quite some time since we have recorded a podcast that's been due to a lot of different factors. There was a quiz meet that uh, got, uh, you know, kind of scheduled there and uh, got us fairly distracted. I was pretty sick during that quiz meet and got sicker after the quiz meet and then Uh, Scott got a little sick, but he got better really quickly. Uh, and then we've got all kinds of schedule stuff that got in our way and we're finally getting back to actually talking about inside quizzing, which I, you know, both of us truly adore actually talking about some of the details, uh, or actually pretty much all the details around quizzing and related subjects. So it's exciting to be back, um, after the, uh, the, the weird and un, uh, unfortunate hiatus. And on the show today, we have a series of different things to talk about. We're going to be, uh, or I'm going to be providing a CBQZ update in terms of what's been going on with the software. We're going to be doing a John chapters 8 and 9 review. And we've got a whole bunch of questions that have come in from listeners that we're going to be answering. And then if we've got some time, and hopefully we will, we'll, we've got some rules ideas that we want to talk about a little bit. We've talked a little bit about some of them in the past, but we want to go a little bit deeper in some of them and new ideas as well. So with that, we'll just kind of jump in and go forward with uh, our first topic, which is the CBQZ update. So this is, uh, let's see, we've done a release of CBQZ, or we launched a a CBQZ, the latest version back in the very end of November it would have been November 30th that it launched out on Friday and there's a whole set of different you know little bug fixes and improvements and lots of little ins and outs and that sort of stuff but I wanted to highlight just a handful of things that of that are of interest and then something that's coming up Probably in the near future. So the first one that I wanted to talk about is official quizzes. So like quizzes that are that are that are done in CBQZ at a quiz meet, right? That that have that official flag uh, marked on them. They now also have a meet label uh, that can be associated with those quizzes. And why is that really important? In and of itself, it's probably not that important, but it's very useful when you're going back later into the stats pages. And that was something that that we were noticing uh, after the fact. You had all these quizzes that were stored there and all these stats and all this data that could be perused through. Uh, but it was really hard to kind of map your way around. Like, well, I want to find quiz four from the third quiz meet or something like that. It was like very hard to to isolate those things in that sort of sea of quizzes. So now we've, we've got the meat label. You can organize that a little bit better. And then in, on top of that, the, uh, there's a team names display in the stats summary, uh, that are on those pages. So you, so when you put those things together, it's very easy to find the quiz that you might uh, be interested in finding some additional information on. So if you happen to be a quizzer or a coach in a particular quiz, and then uh, you've got this idea about a particular question that, that, that was kind of lingering, lingering in your mind, and And then, you know, let's say it's lunch the next day or it's two or three weeks later and you're like, oh, gosh, what was that question? Where was that? What what was the reference to that? You can actually pull that up and you can actually see the the, the reference to the question and the question type that was asked for every question in every quiz, uh, along with all the stats that are there. So that's kind of neat. We also made the material highlight a little bit more prominent. And I also, because I have an OCD sort of sickness when it comes to UI and user experience, UX sort of things, I... uh, uh Fiddled around a little bit more with the meet status page, which is I think Scott's favorite feature of all of CBQZ is just that that meet status page because you can find out where every quiz room is, what question they're on, what the scores are in each of the rooms, all by looking on one page. And by the way, that will scale down and work just fine on most cell phones. I think any any smartphone it should scale down and work just fine on. So if you show up to a meet with a smartphone, you can log in uh, just with any browser. That you have on your smartphone, and you'll be able to get uh, live updated stream data about everything that's happening at the Meet in terms of like, you know, quiz rooms and teams and uh, scores and all that kind of stuff, which is kind of fun. So coming up fairly soon, we have, an, a, I'm very, very excited about this. We're very soonly going to add our first second district. Uh, that is to say, we've been operating CBQZ so far As just a single district, a single Pacific Northwest CMA based uh, district. But we're actually going to, but from the very beginning of CBQZ, it was always designed to be able to work with multiple districts. And we are soon going to be adding our first uh, non PNW CMA district, which will be fantastic because, again, you can. Uh, tailor the rules, uh, of how CBQZ works, uh, in terms of scoring, in terms of question types, in terms of distribution and material and all kinds of stuff that can be tailored and customized per district. And so it'll be exciting to see some of that functionality, uh, get leveraged. All right. So I think that's it for CBQZ, but, uh, let's, uh, kind of move have, on to uh, our, ch- oh, you have something, <clears throat> Scott?
1: I, I have comments. Um, I'm definitely excited for a second district to be using CBQZ. I find that it's probably out of necessity, but the other very large districts that I talk to on a semi-regular basis are decently technologically savvy, and I think that's kind of because you have to be when you have a large district, many quiz rooms, Um, and so it'll be cool to see CBQZ start to get utilized, at least in one other, but I'm hopeful for some of the Canadian districts because they are... Historically large and very well run, um, and it would be a wonderful test for CBQZ. The official quizzes having the meat label is awesome because uh, currently the official stats come in on paper score sheets, but when the meat is done, I go through and I input all of those score sheets for two reasons. One, which is the very secondary reason, as it turns out, is I um, compare my my input of those score sheets to the official stats that came out. And there's there's usually a few errors to fix up, be it a scorekeeper error or a statistician error, and then I can just get those individual stats rock solid going forward. But the bigger thing that I that I want is I'm just curious about per or per-quiz data. Well, now that the CBQZ quizzes are going to have a meat label, it hopefully will be easier for us to compare the data that I have input with quizzes that come into CBQZ as we work to make scorekeeping more and more or less and less error prone um, in preparation for the day when CBQZ will handle all the official scorekeeping and then we won't have paper at all. And the meet status page, it's definitely my favorite page. And I mean, it's amazing to me because I'm running the meet and so I want to know the status of all the quiz rooms. But it would be amazing if I was a coach, if I was running a program and needing to Drive everyone home for the evening on Friday. If I was a parent, um, it's just a great look at um, where quizzing's at. It's information at a glance, and it's awesome that it works in a web browser and on pretty much any kind of device you could dream up.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, as I'm remembering back to my days as a coach, and I mean, one of the things, one of the sort of the chief things that I would have to care about as a coach during a meet was, you know, where's my team going to quiz next? And that would be on a schedule. And then where is that room, you know, in terms of not where physically, but where is it in the schedule? Is it, you know, and, and, and is it usually they'd be like one quiz ahead and I'd be like, okay, well, there's a big difference if they are on question two or question 18. So like, you know, if the, if I look up at my phone and suddenly I can see, oh, they're on question 12. It's like, oh, I know kind of about how long I have and I can go talk to my quizzers and say head to the room and instead of you know constantly popping my head into the room and disturbing people and you know with the door opening and closing and stuff like that you know like what question are they on that kind of stuff I can just you know look at my phone and see like oh they're on question 17 now and oh they just moved to 18 and it's a chapter reference question okay cool interesting and just kind of watch it as it progresses through so like you know even as a you know, certainly there's a huge advantage to seeing the entire quiz meet, you know, uh, uh, from on a single device. It's the current status of a single quiz meet on a, a single device as an official. And certainly as a meet director, uh, that's incredibly helpful. Or as a host, uh, you know, host church, it's incredibly helpful. But I would think even as just a coach or or a captain of a team, kind of knowing kind of the pace of the meet, where things are at, how soon is, is, is my next quiz going to come up? I think that would be uh, a really useful thing to have. Now, the other thing I want to kind of throw out there is statistics in CBQZ, yes, it works. I think we've got it to a point where it's pretty much bug free, but we are not using CBQZ as the primary source of truth, uh, or the canonical source of truth for stats in PNW yet, we want to at, at minimum have at least a good year of, of solid, reliable, like, like we've, we, we can trust that it's, that's doing everything accurately before we switch over. And in the process of doing this, and, but we are actively using it to track the stats, to record the data and, and to be able to reference it later. And part of that process of especially referencing it later and looking things up is we're constantly making little kind of, you know, little tweaks and so forth in terms of being able to query the stored data. And I would say, like, where we are right now, we're probably, I don't know, 40 percent to where I sort of envision it could be in terms of, you know, uh, where it could be in terms of, of, of querying data. So, like, you know, right now you can log in, you can go to the stats page, you can go to, you know, meet number two for the district and you can see all the quizzes listed there and you can pick a quiz and you can go down and see, you know, what was the you know, what were the questions that were asked? What were the, what was the material it was asked on? Uh, you know, what was the percentage of correct and incorrect? You can look at how, you know, an individual did on, on in any one of their questions that they were able to jump on and answer and that kind of thing. And all the data is there, but there isn't a, there isn't a particularly easy way right now to say like, you know, click a button and show me the stats for the, you know, individual stats for every quizzer, you know, in the current uh, quiz year for the district or, show me the highest error rate question types or these sorts of things, right? So I think there's a whole lot more we can be adding to the stats reporting uh, over time, but that a lot of that's going to be iterative. And a lot of that is going to be based, actually a a huge amount of that is going to be based on the feedback that we get from users. So that's one of the reasons why I'm very excited about this uh, new district coming in because it's another point of, of um, it's another user group that will be, be able to provide feedback to us for what sort of features they want to see added into the application over time. So I'm very excited about that.
1: Yeah, the, the user interfaces for generating reports based on the data that you have are hard to build. I think there's a reason why Excel pivot tables are both so heavily used, but also intimidating because you're trying to cram a lot of potential into um, something that you're trying to make as easy to use. And the data that I keep right now is on a per-quizzer, per-quiz level, but CBQZ will will have it on the per-quizzer, per-question level, which is a level of granularity I was not willing to manually input. Um, But I think it could be very, very interesting to see. I mean, if you're running a program, you can see – I mean, hypothetically, you could run a query and say, show me – Every quizzer and question, question type pair where their accuracy is below a threshold. Um, and I guess you could theoretically run it on all, all your opponents too. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it, it, it'll be a trove of data, and I think it'll be a, a bit of a chore to make it easy to create a report that that would be useful to a coach or a quizzer. Yeah, yeah, very much.
0: All right, well, shall we move on to the chapter review? Yeah. John Chapter
1: 8, we'll start with. So, um, I currently run the um, PNW Quizzing Twitter account, and my my tweets that I tweet out have gotten kind of reused by myself, and so I decided to kind of switch tacks a little bit and go through, I think I just went through Chapter 8, and just find anything remotely interesting and tweet about it. And so those are coming out once once a day, and I might have run through my current... Um, queue that I posted up there. But Chapter 8 was an interesting one to look through um, in that it's it's kind of like when it comes to quizzing, it's average on all accounts. Um, It is kind of long at 59 verses, but there's kind of an equal sprinkling of chapter unique words, which are in red in CBQZ, um, the unique phrases, which are in green, and then the global... Unique words, which are in blue, they're just kind of equally spread throughout the whole chapter There's no big concentrated sections of extreme keenness or extreme non keyness kind of in the the middle bit um, versus twenty one through about forty two there's only there's a very small amount of unique words, so that's a bit more um, of a unique wasteland of sorts, but there's There's a a lot of really good back and forth in this chapter that will be the basis for great situation questions, but will also require the quizzer to be very clear about who is speaking because it goes back and forth a little bit. Um, And that's definitely the point of situation questions. The quizzer might be able to finish the quote perfectly, but then when they're prompted for their answer of, you know, who said it or how and, they have to know: is it the Pharisees? Is it the chief priests? Is it Jesus? Is it John? Um, and that's where you'll see the quizzers separate themselves when they're often having to go back to find the speaker of a quotation.
0: Yeah, I had some a, a very similar experience reading through eight. You know, that sort of the we had been talking about keywords either key universally or, or unique words uni- uh, universally or unique to the chapter and so forth or phrases and so forth, how they tended in chapters of the past to be sort of clustered in some areas and absent in others. And in chapter eight, they seem to be fairly evenly distributed. The other thing that kind of struck me here, uh, you know, not going into too many specifics, but one of the things that kind of struck me is how many Uh, I mean, it is a fairly long chapter. There are a decent number of key verses, but there are large chunks of material that are not key verses. And so I think, you know, that if you're looking for opportunities here, there are a number of questions that can be grabbed, especially, you know, standard questions that be grabbed off a lot of this material, because this chapter, the way it flows, it, it sort of lends itself to a lot of really straightforward, standard, interrogative questions uh, because of of that sort of uh, fairly random distribution of uniqueness across the material. Yeah,
1: and there's kind of a, you know, as Griffin was saying, there's not a whole lot of key verses in this chapter. There's kind of a flip side to everything. So in past podcasts, we said, maybe you're a key verse quizzer who wants to try to do a little bit more than just key verses. Well, if there's a chapter that has a ton of key verses in it, well, maybe you want to try to memorize that whole chapter because there's a small amount of non-key verses. And so if you're a key verse quizzer, memorizing a chapter like that that is already key verse heavy means I don't have to memorize a whole lot of other verses and I can kind of dip my toe into the maybe reference question world when it comes to when I hear this chapter read on a question type. Well, this is kind of the flip side here in chapter 8. There's I don't know if there's 10 key verses in this entire chapter. So there's um, very few... There's not a whole lot of opportunity for key verse quizzers to get questions on this chapter. So, if you know you're not a key verse quizzer and you're not memorizing the whole material, but maybe you will memorize an entire chapter here or there, this would be a great one to pick because there's very few key verses where you're going to have key verse quizzers able to get interrogatives, multiple answer questions from those verses. And so, this would be a great one to study. Yeah, absolutely. I also see. Um, some unique words that are um, longer. So words like accusing, questioning, appearing. Um, There's a good chance that a quizzer jumps on accuse or question or appear. Um, And I think it's helpful to note that longer forms of these words um, are unique words. And so the first thing I would do when I see accusing is a unique word is I would go and I would jump, um, jump, I would search in CBQZ for um accuse see how many times it comes up and it's kind of nice accuse only appears twice but accuser appears once and it's a unique word and then accusing appears once and it's a unique word and for some people looking at all of those forms together because they are so similar they're on they're all the same word base can be confusing, but I liked to see them all together and then figure out some sort of mental trick to separate themselves, uh, separate them from each other so that I, they would stick out of my mind. Um, and then I would know if I jumped on accuse, I would have an idea of what I'm going to go for. Um, because I think if you hadn't noticed that accusing and accuser are key words or unique words, then if you jump on accuse, your mind's going to think of accuse, and that's all, because that's what your your brain heard. Um, but looking at those words that are a little bit long, um, seeking later in the chapter, um, glorifies. Um, I bet you the word glorify appears. But just kind of making a note of those. And these weren't things that I, like, took notes on and then studied the notes. It, just as I was reading through um, or quoting, I would kind of just take notes of them um, or just pause for a second and say, oh. Accusing, oh, three-syllable, unique word. Um, not a whole lot of occurrences of cues. And I would just kind of do that so that if I happen to jump on it, um, hopefully this little pause and extra time here would stick out and I would remember it. Now I'm sure there are many things I looked over that I never remembered again because um, I didn't go back and review them. But just these little things that you find interesting or um, that you're curious about and go search in the other other parts of the material will definitely help your brain hold on to them.
0: Yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, moving on to chapter nine, what are your kind of thoughts there?
1: Well, I haven't looked at it until right now, at least for the purposes of talking about it on the podcast. And it looks like there are very few unique words in the first kind of 80% of the chapter, um, with the exception of verse eight. So there might be some good opportunity for, um, reference questions in the first two-thirds or three-quarters of this chapter. Um, there might be fewer interrogative words compared to the average. Um, at least that's that's how I write questions. I think that's how Griffin writes questions too. And um, in general, I think the PNW Quizmasters write questions where they're just trying to write good questions um, of the most appropriate type wherever they happen to occur. Um, so we're not trying to get two interrogatives from every verse. Um, If there's just not a good flowing interrogative that tests the material in a verse, we just won't write one um, and test the material in that verse with the best question type that we can. It might be a multiple answer. It might be a reference. Um, And so I'm just guessing there aren't going to be a ton of interrogatives from the first bit of nine compared to the average. You definitely will have them. Um, But I would challenge yourself if you're a... Um, A quizzer who likes multiple answers or likes reference questions, just read through it with a little more of an inquisitive eye and say, hey, can I find any of these questions here? Um, That's my initial thought.
0: Yeah, I had very much the same thing. I mean, um, not so much maybe th- from verses one through maybe eight, but looking in verses nine through 21, that is a reference gold mine, uh, chapter reference in a lot of places. And then a lot of, uh, chapter verse reference question possibilities, uh, pretty decent questions that can come out of that material. So, you know, if, even if you're not a memorize everything word perfect, uh, sort of quizzer, Uh, you know, focus on that, that, that spot there. And even past 22, I mean, 22 hasn't, you know, acknowledged and a lot of, uh, you know, chapter key, uh, words in it. And it's a fairly, you know, longer verse in and of itself, but then the whole sort of pattern that's in 17, 18, 19 continues in 23, 24, 25, 26, 27. Those are some great, uh, opportunities there. Like 27, he answered chapter verse reference, uh, the quote that is, is, it completes at the end of 27. That just sort of screams to be a, a chapter verse reference question. So, and, 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 you know, I, I haven't looked at the stats, but sort of my, you know, quiz master spidey sense tells me that reference questions are under jumped on and under answered, uh, in our district. And so, you know, if you've got, uh, uh, an interest in expanding your average a bit Uh, the chapter verse reference questions and chapter reference questions would be a fantastic way to do that there's a lot of opportunity in chapter nine for that
1: yep i think um you often see kind of a cycle of quizzing prowess isn't the right word but there's definitely a cyclical nature to a district over time um and There are definitely years where you have very experienced quizzers who are older and maybe upperclassmen, and they've definitely identified reference questions as the most foolproof if you are willing to do the work to know the material. Um, And I totally believe that they are the the least risky questions if you are willing to put in the work to memorize the material. Um, And right now, we're kind of in a trough where reference questions are not jumped on very aggressively. And that just poses an opportunity. Um, and that's how these cycles happen, right? Chapter versus reference questions and chapter reference questions are jumped on slow enough to entice some, some current quizzers to memorize a full chapter here and a full chapter there. And then slowly the jumping speed increases. And I expect those quizzers, if they memorize well, to be able to get a pretty high accuracy on those reference questions. And then over time, um, the pace will continue to go up and then maybe some of those quizzers will graduate, and then the pace comes down. Um, But it's definitely cyclical, and I think there's opportunity on reference questions. One thing that I did tweet out was um, at the end of verse 8, there's a unique word, beg. And I really didn't think that there was a good way to write that into an interrogative question. Usually you like to take note of unique words because they're often in interrogative questions and near the beginning. But beg, I just couldn't really see a good way to write it. Now, I did have two suggestions from... A very good current quizzer and a very good former quizzer on, uh, on Twitter who thought that beg how and what and beg could both be interrogative questions. And I think both of them could totally be interrogative questions, but I don't think they're that good. Um, and so if I'm a quizzer just kind of scoping out the unique words, I would not expect to get questions um, like that on that word, beg. And so beg would be a unique word that you just wouldn't have to – you don't need to know it as well as other words. Like, looking earlier, spit, or formerly, or begging, or later in the chapter, acknowledged. Like, there's a pretty good chance that those unique words are in interrogative and multiple answer questions and near the beginning of the question. Um, But I don't think it's the same case for beg.
0: Yeah, and then plus looking at verse 8, I mean, a lot of opportunities here for multiple answer questions. You know, sit and beg, and then his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging, uh, you know, there's beautiful opportunities for multiple answers from eight. And so, you know, if I'm, if I'm able to grab a couple of really good multiple answer questions and then ask a couple of good interrogative questions, uh, formally what or begged asking or bet, sorry, begged, begging, let me see if I can talk correctly, begging asked what or something like that. Eh, no, that one's kind of weird. Now that I say it out loud, I'm like, no, that one's kind of weird. But there's, there's opportunities here for a lot of questions. I wouldn't kind of descend down the ladder to some of these more convoluted questions.
1: Absolutely. And I always found that fun when I was studying is kind of put your yourself in the mind of a question writer. And this verse has a good mix of um, key stuff and not key stuff, multiple answers, interrogatives. And so there's a lot of opportunities where you can totally guess where a question writer is going to go. And so, because of that, um, there's a low chance that they use "beg" as the basis for any question. If it was um, a verse that didn't have all those really good, obvious opportunities for questions, maybe a question writer would um, write a less than ideal question, but that is still valid. Um, but as Griffin said, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen in this verse. Yep, indeed. Looks like nine also has very few key verses. I see five out of the 41 verses, and two of them are finish thises. Um, That's definitely another exhortation I have to people. Those um, special key verse types, so finish these two, quote these two, finish this, and finish this, and the next, there are very few of them relative to the number of total key verses. And so, I mean, if you're willing to memorize every finish this, finish this, and the next, And you have an alphabetical list um, of those, I think you could really do some damage because you get a couple of those every single meet and the jumping speeds have not been super aggressive. And I think a quizzer who wants to put in maybe an hour to make sure that they know those verses and have the alphabetical list could sweep them at the next meet. And it's always my hope that a quizzer does that, sweeps them, and other quizzers take note and say, hey... I can put in the work and maybe jump a quarter of a syllable faster and then you get quizzers um, working harder on the material, um, really working to understand a question type, which enables them to make a study list. Um, and then over time, quizzers find those under jumped on question types as maybe the finish of this pace gets pushed really, really fast over time. And it's just kind of the, the push and pull and the give and take of uh, the competitive side of quizzing and I find it really fun.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. The other thing I would add here is, um, you know, we're talking about like strategies for you, the listener, uh, depending on who you happen to be. But if you, the listener, happens to be a captain who memorizes a lot, uh, or even all of the material, I would consider looking at what Scott just said in terms of how to motivate and, and encourage your third and fourth uh chairs or even your fifth chair if you happen to have a uh, you know a fifth uh, quizzer and a sub uh this would be a great opportunity to help motivate your like you know get third and fourth quizzer bonuses uh on some questions that i mean certainly you could jump and answer them but it's worth so much more to your team to get those uh third and fourth quizzers up there definitely and finish
1: this finish this in the next and probably multiple answers are probably some of the quickest um, return on your investment that you can get. Um, now, it, those just those types definitely have a very limited upside, meaning it probably would be hard to make Great West just studying those types. Um, but if you have third, fourth, and fifth quizzers on your team that maybe get a question or two a Meet – um, looking at those types and helping them study for them could definitely double, you know, from one or two questions of meet to three or four or maybe five or six. And those can have a huge impact um, both for how your team scores and how your team places at the meet. But I think it drastically um, increases the fun that all the team members have, like together. And then it also increases the fun that that single quizzer has. I think those are really awesome things. I love to highlight it when teams get third, fourth, and fifth person bonuses. They're relatively rare. And it was always one of my favorite things to do as a quizzer when I was on a team that could do that
0: regularly. Yeah, absolutely. And so coaches take note also uh, if you're trying to motivate uh, your third and fourth chairs on you know, however many teams you happen to be coaching. Uh, this is a great opportunity for that.
1: I think we've hit chapters 8 and 9. Should we go on to some questions from listeners?
0: Yeah, let's do that. The first one from chapter 9, verse 21. You want to hit that one up? Yes. Let's see here.
1: So in chapter 9, verse 21, um, let me pull it up here. It says, as part of the verse, but it says, ask him, he is of age. Now in verse 23, it contains the phrase, he is of age, ask him. So the same six words... And we can think of them as a four-word and a two-word phrase that are identical, but just reversed. Like um, in verse 21, ask him is the first phrase, and he is of age is the second phrase. And in verse 23, he is of age is the first phrase, and ask him is the second phrase. So the question was posed, um, if a quizzer jumped on a quote or CVR and quoted either phrase in reverse order, um, could they be called out of context? for quoting from the other verse. What do you think, Griffin?
0: I think no. Um Now, I think that if it was a, say, a quote question, I could not count them correct yet, but I don't, by just putting those out of order, I wouldn't necessarily put them uh, out of context. I think the same thing could have been, could be said for, you know, imagine somebody says, ask him, uh, and there's another verse that says, "Ask him is just saying, "Ask him, does that put you out of context? Well, of course it doesn't. Um, I think uh, and then saying, well, if you are in a different verse that doesn't have repeated material and you simply say parts of that verse out of order, no, that does not put you uh, out of context. You need to be clearly referencing material that isn't in the verse that you're actually talking about. I
1: agree, and I'm gonna say some things that I believe pretty strongly, but also, I don't like that I believe them strongly because they, they feel almost hypocritical or a poor belief. But I think that um, most rules in quizzing are best if they're objective. So if there's kind of a clear right and a clear wrong, um, because it just leads to greater consistency. Um, it's easier to get um, good officials uh, for quizmasters. You don't um, frustrate quizzers who are working hard to memorize the material. And at the end of the day, we want <clears throat> quizzers to be counted correct um, to um, when, it, when they have adequately memorized the material and can display that. Um, and if there are inconsistencies in rulings or the ways that the rules are written that cause that not to happen, then it's kind of a, a slight disincentive to quizzers to study. So in general, I think things should be objective. Well, the context rule is not... It just says quizzer has to be in context. It doesn't say um, definitively what amount or something of words takes you out of context. Um, but I and I, I think that's wonderful. So in contrast to what I think about most areas of the rule book, I think the subjectivity around context is wonderful. and I think I take this very seriously as a quiz master to decide whether or not I think a quizzer is truly in a different context. So in a case like this, he is of age, ask him, ask him, he is of age. I don't think there's any way for me to tell where the quizzer is. Um, it's the same material, just reversed. The reversal doesn't really change the meaning at all, and so I really can't find any way to call the quizzer incorrect here. At the same time, I, I don't think a quizmaster can really be expected to judge intent, even though that's what we're doing here. Um, and so as much as possible, I try to rely on the words as they are spoken. So it could be a quizzer misspeaks and says a sequence of words that are in a different context. Well, I don't think as a quiz master I get to say, well, they didn't mean to, so then it's okay that they said something from a different context. I'm just saying, like, they did say something from a different context, and um, I'm going to call them out of context for that. And when it comes to context, I kind of have this sliding scale um, of strictness. So when it comes to interrogatives, multiple answers, I'm decently lenient. I want it to be obvious that a quizzer has gone into a different context um, or switched context before I call them out of context. When it comes to a reference question, I'm a lot more strict. For example, if um, one verse said the bubbling stream and another verse said the bubbling brook, um, well, if it's an interrogative question, those two words have a very similar meaning, and I might let it slide if the quizzer said one. But when it comes to a reference question, those slight differences are often the the very basis for this reference question, um, and so I would not let it slide when it comes to reference questions. And those are, those are a few things that I'm always trying to square or rectify in my head. I don't like, in general, that co- the definition of context is subjective and I am – Needing to rule on something subjective in a consistent manner. And I also don't like the general notion of um, a different severity or strictness of context based on the question type. But I think both things are in the best ent- interest of the quizzer and in the best interest of re- rewarding the quizzers who have studied the material um, to the extent that they can get correct questions. And then if you are rewarding, just to the quizzers who have studied the material well enough to get correct questions, then you are encouraging the similar levels or types of
0: study in the future. And that's kind of a lot that I just threw out there. (laughs) Yep. Well, and I, I pretty much agree with everything on a hypothetical note. And I'm not sure I actually like this idea, but on a hypothetical note, I've, I have sort of as a thought experiment daydreamed about the idea of doing away with context entirely uh and just saying yeah if you happen to be out of context there that who cares like you still you have 30 seconds to answer you're not correct until you get the right material um i don't know i don't know how how that would be so bad necessarily i don't know do you have any quick thoughts about that one
1: my gut feeling cuz this was proposed um Gosh, I think it was 2013, and I'm sure people have had ideas like this before, but I heard about it, and I thought, immediately I thought that was just a terrible idea, because you're going to have quizzers just saying as much stuff as they can in the 30 seconds. But the more I think about it, um, doing away with context, um, like, I definitely do rule quizzers incorrect for going out of context, but it pales in comparison to the, the percentage of the time that I rule them out of context for either not giving the correct information or for giving incorrect information. And both of those would still be requirements. And so it's kind of hard to quote from a different context without giving an incorrect answer. So if they want to say random groupings of words that might put them in a different context but is not enough to count them incorrect, it's probably fine. And then there's less checking for the quiz master to do. I do hesitate um, when it comes to something that would encourage quizzers to say more and more stuff quickly, um, which is kind of my hesitation against cross-reference questions or quote these three or four. um, Because sometimes quizzers are quoting so fast already, even when they have plenty of time. And so when they truly are crunched for time, I think they might get quoting crazy, crazy fast. But in general, I actually think that doing away with context would have a pretty minimal impact um, and probably be positive. Yep. I did have another thought and I'm trying to remember what it was cause you threw my thinking off with that question. Um, I have no, oh, I remember. So, um, in a very recent within the last year update to the rule book, unique words are required. Um, so if there's a unique word present, it is required to be counted. Correct. Um, In addition, language was added to the rulebook saying that if a quizzer says, um, like, a unique word, I can't remember if it specifies a unique word or not, but it says, like, a single word is not enough to take the quizzer out of context. So if, you know... um, man let's just take something like that that's never going to be a unique word but let's say man appears only once in a material and a quizzer says man and it happens to be in a different context well that's not enough for the quizmaster to say like oh you went to this other context for saying the unique word man and it only appears once you're incorrect so my question for you griffin is i was watching an international's quiz and the quizzer said something like i am the man and Again, let's hypothetically assume that man is a unique word. Um, And what they actually needed to say was, I am the one or something like that. And um, I'm realizing I kind of gave a poor example because all of the words are fairly insignificant. Um, But I remember it being a four- or five-word phrase where the two phrases differed by only one word, and it was the last one, Um, and those words were both unique words and when the quizzer said one from the wrong context i thought they were going to get ruled incorrect for going out of context and the quizmaster and i believe the quizmaster did not rule that way was challenged and when they over- overruled the challenge their reasoning was i cannot call a quizzer out of context on just a single word well the way i interpreted that is like just a single word kind of in a silo and not a single word attached to other words. So in my mind, I viewed this as a four or five word phrase and not a one word. But I was interested in your thoughts, Griffin, because you could argue that this word was the only one that differed between the two phrases. And so it kind of is a single word, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, if I'm understanding. So the two phrases are identical except for the one word delta, right? Correct. And this was
1: this was the yeah. finish the verse question, and they were the first words in the verse.
0: Right. Yeah. 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 And and I'm assuming they said it incorrectly, and then uh, with their time they said it correctly, and then were counted correct. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think the quizmaster made the right ruling. I think the challenge is. I would have to overrule the challenge. I mean, I think it's it's a you know good idea to challenge to 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 to, to try to you know push on this a little bit. But yeah, I think the quizmaster made the right ruling. I, I think even though it is one word within a phrase, uh. Yeah, rule book is – this is one of those things where in context – you know, when it comes to the context rule, it is very objective. You can't count them incorrect on a single word.
1: So if you had two verses and one started for God so loved the world and the other one started like for God so loved the earth or something, you don't think you could call a quizzer out of context for going into another verse when they said
0: the first like seven words from a different verse? I think the rule book is objectively clear on this one. Um, I, I think uh, I think you can't call them out of context.
1: That's interesting because
0: a lot of times
1: um, phrases become unique; they swing on a single word, and oftentimes that single word is what the quizzers are mixing up because the rest of it are identical to another place in the material. You
0: right. know, right? Um. Interesting. Here's the thing if 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 it's a phrase that's different then certainly you know that that goes back to the subjectiveness is it enough to count them out of context maybe but if it's a phrase that exists in the in the context that they're they're that they're quoting but one word is different uh i i think i think the rule book is objectively clear you can't call them out of context so you would define that as a single word yeah well i mean it, i think the rule book defines it as a single word but yeah so you would say like so if I
1: called the quiz wrong for going out of context, you would consider me to have made it in made an incorrect ruling because um of the single word that was
0: different from what the intended was. Yeah. Um now if I'm understanding the rule book uh properly, but yeah, I I I think that would be uh I I mean if I was a captain I would challenge, if I was a coach I might even consider protesting if I you know, really wanted to go down that, that route. Um, I, th- I think this is one of those things where it's not subjective. I think it's a very clear objective, you know, contextual uh, argument there, you know, something straight from the rule book is sort of black letter law. Uh, when it sure. comes to quizzing. Sure. And tell me if, if this analogy is awful,
1: because I'm notorious for coming up with analogies to prove a point that are awful. <laughs> um, but let's say we're talking about baseball and the rule book says three strikes constitute a strikeout and the rule book also says a single strike um is not enough to strike out the batter and i cl- and then i claim that the third strike is a single strike in and of itself
0: and you cannot you know what? yeah but that i don't i don't know i think i think i think that analogy is really really not appropriate cuz i mean essentially you're you're saying you need three occurrences of a thing and this is what the thing is, and one occurrence of a thing is not sufficient to count you as a strikeout. And you're like, Well yeah, because it's one occurrence is not enough, you need three occurrences, right? Um I think that make-
1: No, that makes total sense. I think the the line that I'm drawing is um it's a single strike, but I say context matters. And the two strikes that are already there affect how I interpret that single strike wording. Similarly here, single word, sure. The quizzer says one unique word. I'm not going to call them out of context based on that. But I think what they said before has a lot of weight. Um, and the context of what they've said already
0: matters when I'm ruling on context. Um, yeah, but and, if you think it needs to be that way, I think the rulebook needs to be a lot more clear about that specifically. Because I mean, I mean the way the rulebook is written right now, it seems really black and white that a single word is is insufficient. Interesting. Maybe
1: yeah, maybe I just like exactness and that's why my first interpretation was
0: the way that it is but yeah inter- well interesting. and the, the thing is you know when we're talking about context i mean the one word context thing is is exact because it's clear and unambiguous in the rule book right and it's and it can be clear and unambiguous when somebody's answering and when a quiz master is making a ruling but the rest of context is subjective and you were saying how you kind of like that and i and i and i get where you're coming from like i also kind of like that if I have to make a ruling based on whether or not the person is in or out of context, I like having the subjectivity uh, around that, even though like you, I very much prefer uh, and would, would relish the opportunity of having everything being objective, which is part of why I am desirous of getting rid of context altogether because I don't think there's really going to be all that much negative that comes about of it. And by doing away with the context rule entirely, it means I can be much more objective as a quiz master, which I think adds to more fairness of outcome. And that. In turn leads to a better program. I, I think, I think b- because of the subjectivity around the context rule, I get really, really concerned that, you know, I might rule one way in my room and some other quizzer in a different room is going to rule a different way. And that inconsistency bothers me.
1: Sure, but I think the objective way for context would just kind of be untenable because then a quizmaster would have to search every two, three, four, five, six N word key phrase to see if a quizzer went out of context. Oh, I, I completely really...
0: agree. I completely agree. I don't think there is a way to objectively make it absolutely the same across room to room to room. I think there has to be, if you're going to have context at all, there has to be a subjective side to it, which is part of why I don't want there to be context at all. Sure. And yeah, I
1: see that. Now I also have viewed a quizzer's knowledge of the rulebook and ability to challenge um, as part of your kind of tool set as a good quizzer, which is why understanding that there is going to be some level of inconsistency um, among rooms, especially on something like context that quizzers should feel very empowered to challenge on context. Um, And if that's happening on a more regular basis, it probably pushes the district towards more consistent rulings because I definitely know it's those sorts of things that I take note of when I really wrestle with it as a quizmaster, And those are the things that I will discuss with other quizmasters, you know, and we'll say, Hey, um, quizzer said this, I thought they went out of context. They challenged and didn't think they did. What do you think? And I think those conversations will push us towards more consistency, even in a world with context.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. Totally agree. Well, and on that note, we should probably move on to the next question, um, which is something kind of related to what you were just talking about, the difference between uh, quiz masters in different rooms. Uh, and the question that comes in from a listener reads as follows. How do I quiz well in a quiz master's room when I don't like their questions, their speed or lack thereof, their rulings? Or I've been unlucky while they've quiz mastered. So I mean, there's there's a lot there's a lot in that question to unpack. Uh, you know, the idea of like I don't like their questions, I don't like their cadence, I don't like their ruling, I don't like the size of their room, I don't like you know whether the room echoes or not or it's too hot or it's too cold or it's you know too big i've heard people complain that they they don't like quizzing in room 1 because it's usually the main sanctuary it's really big it's you know kind of scary they prefer the smaller rooms all that kind of stuff like like how do you overcome these things and there's a lot of these things listed here. And then I sort of added, you know, a few other different things to try to overcome. And I think the solution to each of them is a little bit different, right? Like how do you overcome not liking their questions? How do you overcome not liking their cadence? How do you overcome their rulings and that kind of stuff? Then, then there's things about the room in particular, right? You know, how do you overcome the room? Well, overcoming the room, I mean, you basically just have to get used to it. You have to force yourself to be uh, as consistent as you can in any context, whether it's a, you know, s- you know small hot room, big uh, room that echoes and is hard to hear and is cold and everywhere in between. Uh, you sort of, as your room, as you're moving room to room, you sort of have to adjust yourself and get yourself prepped as best you can for it. There isn't really much that you can do about it. I know that meet hosts are always trying to try to make the rooms as consistent as possible. They're trying to make the temperature controls reasonable. They're trying to make the sound, uh, or, or you know, the, the, whatever muffled sounds come in from outside. They're trying to reduce the, the, the noise and distraction and so forth. They're trying their best to make it as, uh, effective as they can in terms of the location. But in terms of a, a quiz master in particular, like how do you deal with not liking their questions or their speed, their cadence or their rulings or so forth? So when it comes to questions in, uh, in, in, in PNW right now, because we're using CBQZ, we're actually using a shared question set. So there aren't, there, there are no Scott questions or Griffin questions or Cuddy questions or anything like that. Like all of the questions are a single question set now there are occasionally some not so good questions uh those pop up and you know Scott and I and others are marking them and we're editing them and we're constantly re- you know refining them and so forth uh but there isn't like a you know that particular quizmaster's questions you know we're all sharing them together but that being said if you if you encounter a question that you don't like or or for whatever reason you're like wow that was an awful question uh, you, if it's, if it's awful enough that you can challenge, uh, challenge, you know, absolutely. If it's not awful enough to challenge, mention it to the quiz master after the quiz. Uh, if it's their own question, they definitely should be hearing your feedback about that in, 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 in whatever context it happens to be, you know, uh, if it's, you know, PNW, and certainly we want to hear that feedback, because we're sharing questions. Uh, but in in other contexts, if you know, if I'm a quiz master, and I write my own questions, I want to hear the feedback of like, yeah, that question was kind of icky for me or something like that. Even if I disagree with you, I'm going to go back and read the question again. I'm gonna go back and be like, hmm, maybe I should study that a little bit more, or I'll I'll ask other people for their input or something like that. That feedback is incredibly important. And I, I would say that kind of feedback is also super useful and super necessary for quizmasters in those other sort of areas as well. So like you, you're you don't like a quizmaster's cadence. Or their speed, or their lack of their speed, and you or you don't like their rulings, or something like that. Now, if their if their rulings are bad enough or wrong enough, where you can challenge challenge them, absolutely challenge. That's that is the tool that you have in the moment in the context of the quiz to be able to kind of push back a little bit on bad quiz mastering, or you know, in terms of the rulings and so forth. Uh, but if it's not necessarily cut and dry in terms of a challenge, definitely talk to the quiz master after the quiz. It doesn't have to be immediately after it could be, you know, during lunch, uh, it could be, you know, later on, send an email to the quiz master, that kind of thing. Uh, if you don't feel comfortable doing that and try, I mean, d- quiz masters are different. You know, I, I think in PNW, we have some very approachable quiz masters and I know every single quiz master in PNW right now would very much like to hear your feedback in terms of their rulings and their, and the questions and cadence and how they're doing and all that kind of stuff. Um, but if you don't feel comfortable doing that, if, if you happen to be a you know great West and you don't know the quiz master and you're, you're kind of feeling uncomfortable about, you know, providing that kind of feedback uh, definitely mention it to your coach and encourage your coach to go talk to the quiz master or talk to the Meet director. It's not like this big deal. It's not like you're trying to get the quiz master in trouble. You're trying to provide feedback, and trust me, quiz masters want that feedback. We, I mean, good quiz masters, I think really, really want that feedback anyway. So Scott, what do you think?
1: I have lots of thoughts and I made a bullet list and I will pause after each one to see if you have any interjections. But I think the first thing is as a quizzer, there's, um, kind of the first three points in one, there's over 50 quizzes a year that count for your average. Um, and so, There's going to be a lot of variability, but also everyone's kind of going to get to quiz in all kinds of rooms and with all of the different quiz masters, mostly. It won't be 100% equal, of course. But if there's a quiz master that you don't quiz particularly well in their room, well, most people will probably have a quiz master that they quiz less well in than whatever their average is. I think that helps to realize like you're all kind of quizzing in the same types of rooms and quiz masters um, and moving around. But I always try to prepare such that I could eliminate those sorts of variables. So if I wanted to make Great West and I thought it would take a 45 average, well, I would prepare to try to get at least a 50 average or something so that if an unfortunate quiz happened that maybe was outside of my control, it wouldn't be the thing that dropped me below whatever my goal was. Um, And I think it helps to just kind of have the psychology of everyone is mostly doing – um having the same test as me and how can I deal with it better than everybody else can. Um, I, I know of a coach who knew about a quizmaster who had um more variable timing when it came to asking questions. And this coach would specifically prepare their team to be more focused and more prepared for whenever that question was going to start being read. Um, in an effort to be more prepared than the other teams in the quiz. And so things like that are things you can be on the lookout for. Um, if a quiz master has some quirks or things that are substandard, it is an ability for you to gain an edge over the other quizzers in the quiz. Um, and then the last few things are, eh, they're not really related. Um, <clears throat> quiz masters are all individuals and have tendencies and personalities. And I think that that is wonderful. I think it is helpful for Quizmasters to self-examine because um, occasionally it can be too much of a good thing. I know that I I keep stats on accuracy in Quizmasters rooms, and there was some differences. And so I asked recently graduated quizzers, like, hey, what are some reasons you think that um, it could be different? And you get all kinds of very interesting feedback. You know, a huge one was the size of room. Um it's harder on average to quiz in a giant room with more audience. Um, <clears throat> but then the quizzers would also say things like these quizmasters are a lot more fun. Their room is more, they make it more fun to quiz in their room. And so um, you're more at ease and often quiz better, but on the flip side, they may be less exacting of a quiz master, which may lead to more incons- inconsistency, which might hurt a quizzer. And then thinking about the other type of quiz master who might be very exacting um, which might provide consistency that's great for the quizzer, but might also come across as intimidating or harsh or cold, which will make it harder for the quizzer to quiz well. And so um, there's definitely no need for every quiz master to be the exact same, but I think it's helpful to, like, I'm definitely one of the more harsh, intimidating quiz masters. And so I want to, as much as possible, try to um, say nice things, make the room be welcoming, because I want quizzers to both experience wonderful consistency and exactness for me as a quiz master, but also not be put on edge because of my demeanor. Um, so I think that's helpful for quiz masters to think about. I know when I was at internationals, there was one quiz master who read questions in a way that i had never encountered. Um, they paused significantly after the last question. So they would say question number one is a quote question. Question number one question quote Hebrews chapter one, verse eight and To me, this was maddening. Like, this is not how you should read a question. And rather than adapt, kind of accept it and adapt, I almost wanted to fight it. And as a result, quizzed very poorly in that room for the entirety of the meet. Um, Not realizing that this pause, even though it was new for me, um, was a consistent length every single time. (laughs) And consistency is almost more... um, desired from a quiz master than being good. Um, in this case, I don't think it was bad necessarily, but the, there was consistency and I just was bullheaded and unwilling to adapt. So that's a lesson to adapt um, whenever you can, because everyone else has to do the same thing. Um, I've also run across quiz masters that probably are not super confident in their abilities. And so any sort of challenge or protest or criticism, um, they almost take it personally. And then hold it against uh, people. And that's that's a pretty poor form as a quiz master because um, quiz masters are supposed to be the adults. I've definitely, like, there are coaches that have been more outspoken than the average coach or more passionate or more immature, whatever adjective you want to throw on it. And I definitely don't think it's my place to punish them or do any, like, um, we have a structure for quizzing. Quiz master is running the show, and there are things like challenge and protest that are available so that the participants can lodge a complaint. And I always will adjudicate those structures the exact same way, regardless of how the challenge or protest was gone about. Um, there are definitely opportunities to talk with people after the quiz or after the meet, um, but I think it's the quizmaster's job to treat everything the same. Um, and I think it's, um, you're a poor quizmaster if you don't. <clears throat> but also thinking about the variability, kind of going back to the quizzer's point of view. Um, there was a year at internationals where PW did very well. And among the 12 prelims, um, six of the prelims were in the room of a quiz master who was excellent, just far and above better than the other three quiz masters. Um, and that was luck, right? We had six instead of, you know, Most people probably had three in each room, but we had six, and that was a big factor to doing well at that meet. And so there is just going to be variable in quizzing. Um, If we had been better prepared, we probably could have made that not an issue, Um, not something of... um, It wouldn't have been luck that we needed, Um, but with any competitive structure, there's luck involved, variability involved that kind of keeps it fun, I think, um as much as we want perfect um equality of everything for everyone if we had that if we could design a competitive structure and a rule book and officials um and we got that i think we might find it boring as much as we desire it now so that's my brain dump about um different things you might experience um from quizmasters as a quizzer
0: all right very cool well, and on that note, we are a little bit over time, so we should probably pause here and continue on with listener questions uh, and rules ideas in our next episode. But if you have any particular questions that you'd like to throw our way, or even better, if you disagree with anything that we've said on this or any other episode, we would very much like to hear from you. Uh, please email us at iq at cbqz.org. And even if it's just to say hi and you're listening, we like to hear from people who are listening. And just to let us know that you are listening, that's fantastic. But uh, if you have any thoughts about either questions about quizzing or thoughts for topics that you'd like to hear covered in future shows or any kind of rules ideas that you have or disagreements that you have with us, we'd very much like to hear from you. So email us at iq at cbqz.org and you can follow us on Twitter at inside quizzing. And with that, I will bid you all adieu and thank you, Scott, and thank you all. Thanks, everyone. Happy listening and happy studying.